It's a secret remedy. Men don't normally drink cranberry juice. Cranberry juice. Podcast. Yes. Well, welcome to our first podcast episode of Cranberry Juice. Um, for this first podcast, we welcome Maya Lane and Claudia Parise. Um, we both met them at OT301 uh, two years ago when we did our event. And they both were guests there. And so they came back together uh, for a lecture that happened on the 10th of October. We found Maya-Lane and Claudia through an open call originally, didn't we? Maya-Lane responded to our Facebook post and she introduced herself as a medical anthropologist that was specialized on uh, AFAB health, so assigned female at birth health and vulva pain and... And Claudia was... I remember reading Claudia's because we included Claudia in our first publication. And Claudia wrote this really incredible thesis about the origins of care practices in society and witches. And this time when she was speaking, it was also reflecting more to the kind of structures of society and this term of epistemic injustice, which is what is all the basis of this like knowing. Well, we will get into that more. Yeah. I mean, I forgot to specify, but this year we're going to run, I mean, we're running an intercurriculum program uh, within the Rietveld Academy, which is giving us the opportunity to organize all of these lectures and invite all of these amazing guests. And so we decided to record all of the lectures and make them available as podcasts. So this is the first episode. And for all the lectures, there will be episode coming up as well. And it will be monthly lectures, so every month you will have a podcast. And maybe we should also mention that from we've always been very set as a collective as on being hosts and facilitators, like creating a stage for uh, artists and researchers to give talks. But we ourselves are not experts in the field and are also learning as we go along. <laughs> so be kind to us. Yeah. <laughs> It's just about sharing our interest and curiosity within this topic. And personally, it's a lot of the information that I felt like I lacked uh, growing up and studying. So I think part of our motivation is kind of to to um, provide a stage for these voices that we ourselves wish that we... I mean, we're bringing them there now but yeah and I think we all have these experiences we all have the experiences of like feeling gaslit in the in the medical sphere when it comes to reproductive health for example yeah or your pain not being taken seriously or your you know being provided medication that is under research so we have these experiences but then you don't know how to uh, locate it or name it or Mm. like see where the problem comes from and I think it's all just this like trying to figure out um, where does it come from and how can we change towards the future. Yeah. yeah. And also just learning new languages, you know, because through these lectures we learn new terms, new ways of describing something, a pain, an incomfort uh, that gives us more tools, you know, to feel better, to just mm. like f- feel 
yeah more comfortable uh, with our bodies yeah more in charge yeah yeah but should we give like um an intro about them so claudia's talk is called knowing and healing from the margins self-care practices as resistance to epistemic injustice in sexual and reproductive health claudia is born in catalonia and based in amsterdam She is a PhD candidate at the Departments of Ethics, Law and Humanities at the Amsterdam UMC. Claudia has worked at the NGO Women on Waves, where she wrote a study on self-sourcing of the abortion pill and other sexual and reproductive health medications. Claudia has worked in the European Abortion Access Project led by the University of Barcelona, where she conducted research about in-country traveling to access abortion services in Spain. Her PhD thesis focuses on exploring how and why epistemic injustices operate in research and academia and the consequences of it for marginalized populations, but also for the scientific community and for the civil society as a whole. Our second speaker is Maya Lane. Maya is a medical anthropologist, teacher and researcher living and working across the Netherlands and Spain. Her current work focuses on care practices and the creation of queer ecologies, gendered experiences of chronic illness and multi-species entanglement within and across the body. She strongly believes in making academic research as accessible as possible and uses feminist participatory research techniques throughout her work. Maya currently teaches sociology at University of Amsterdam and is a researcher at the interdisciplinary group Arctic, which investigates aesthetic intervention in spaces of care. Maya dreams of starting a queer horizontal research center that prioritizes radical care and applied research and has a communal vegetable garden. The title of uh, Maya's talk is My vulva is a pit of nothingness apart from pain. Interrelation between care, queerness and chronically painful vulvas. And we love this title. <laughs> okay, well, enjoy. <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> yes? Hello, everyone. And thank you to these amazing people for inviting me again. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's always nice to, to get to talk about research that I do outside my PhD, and I think that it's the one that motivates me the most. And you know, you, when you are in your academic uh, path, you get to go to a lot of conferences, but what you read and write outside that, it's not so easy to, to share, so thank you to cranberry juice again. And I will start by explaining a little bit, I changed the title um, because, so I presented this same study uh, some, year, some months, years ago, uh, at OT301. It was called Healing and Caring from the Margins. But now I'm talking about knowing, um, basically because I started my PhD on January, and I focus on epistemic injustice, which is a concept that maybe sounds a little bit, you know, like very academic, blah, 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 but it's quite, it's quite important and relevant, and we can identify a lot of, of epistemic injustices in our daily lives. Uh, so I thought that 
knowledge and after doing my research also uh, in Barcelona on abortion access, I, I realized that knowledge and knowing about health and reproductive health uh, services, it's the first step to access them. So that's also why I became interested in this topic and why I changed uh, the, the title. And let me explain a little bit of, of where I come from. A part of all these things that I don't think, um, I feel very unrepresented by them because, you know, imposter syndrome, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I come from a very small village and um, I was grown by three women or I was surrounded by women since I was very, very small. And then I studied biology and I shared classrooms with medicine students. And so I was trained as a medical doctor for four years almost. And then I realized uh, that of course medicine has a lot to do with caring, um, but if care is gender biased, and this is why it, it why I started to do all this research. Like, I w it was very intriguing for me to see how caring in general and mostly Mediterranean countries is is done by women and it's a very feminine practice. And however, when it is professionalized, we only see men, cis men. So, uh, well, I will not go, the outline is like uh, for, a, for, the, for a class, uh, maybe a university class. Um, so I came up with this question, which is like, if care is a gender biased task, why is such a masculinized job? And why it happens when, when it enters the professional sphere? Uh, so everything started from here. And now you will see where I went through um, following this intuition or this curiosity. This is a disclaimer because I focused my research in Western European countries and it's very important to say that because if I'm talking about epistemic injustice and then I don't acknowledge that this is not universal, I'm committing epistemicide and I'm committing another epistemic injustice. So for the sake of my scope for where, where I was based, which was the Netherlands, and also from my background, I decided to focus my research mainly on Western European countries. So first of all, and before answering the previous question, I will introduce you a little bit this concept. I hope that uh, I do it right. Um, so this concept comes from the philosopher Miranda Fricker. And basically what it says is that uh, epistemic injustice happens when moral wrongs occur in process in which knowledge is involved. And it can be about the production, the use, or the circulation of this knowledge. And these epistemic wrongs lead to epistemic injustices if the knowledge held by people who belong to marginalized groups is systematically afforded less credibility. And if their interpretative resources are not taken into account. I will go more on detail now. Miranda Fricker, even though uh, she has received a lot of criticism, but I think it's useful to just put the concepts out there. And if someone is an expert on this, then we can have a very nice discussion. Uh, so according to her, we have two forms of testing of 
epistemic injustice, first of all, testimonial injustice, which basically refers to the phenomenon that happens when someone is not uh, perceived as a credible knower because of belonging to some social groups. So for instance, when women uh, not, maybe uh, some years ago, were not mm, rational, because they were historical, so they were not credible knowers. This is an easy example, that's why I'm using it. And then we have hermeneutical or interpretative injustice, which happens when the there, there is a gap in the common knowledge about certain phenomenon that affect certain groups of the population. So for instance, um, we now know what is sexual harassment and what is not sexual harassment, and our knowledge on sexual harassment has been amplified, and we have the words to name sexual harassment in many types and in a lot of ways, but maybe 100 years ago, we just had the feeling, but not the words. We didn't have the knowledge. So that would be some examples so you can understand. And then you will, if you remember a little bit these words, you will see them and you will be able to identify them through all the examples that I will be giving today. So uh, to answer my question, I had to go back to the Middle Ages, which is very far away. But um, I had a lot of fun uh, reading about it. I was a historian for just one month. It was amazing to look at all these books. Uh, so I also have a disclaimer that I'm not a historian. So if there's a historian in the room, please uh, forgive me. But uh, what I will present you now is a little bit uh, how women, uh, but mostly the working class, uh, was completely marginalized um, by the professionalization of medicine. So um, the first epistemic injustice is this one. Historical documents dismiss women's involvement in medical interventions, but this is not true. This contradicts anthropological approaches that highlight the contribution of women to a great diversity of historical specific systems of organizing healthcare. And these are the words of a of Montserrat Cabré, which is a medical historian that has based her, her academic career on the Iberian Peninsula. And she has made great contributions, as well as other historians, all of them women, of course. And she talks about this kind of healing practices and medicine, which is called domestic medicine, which of course are not understood, and this is why I mean that this is the first epistemic injustice, because we don't call them as medicine or healing practices, but just like as domestic practice. But the thing is that they were, those practices or, or those tasks were the main base of, uh, of the working class and the peasantry health. So they were literally uh, sustaining life. And we have, uh, I took as, a, as an example recipes books because recipes books are the only written document that we kind of document that we have now um, but they were this kind of internet of their era so they would write down uh, recipes they would uh, pass, pass it to the neighbors and the neighbors would say okay I will uh, make it better because this has worked with my family or with my neighbors 
uh, and and these historians have found them have first of all wanted to look for them and then f they found them and they are incredible uh, testimonies that women's healing networks and communities were essential to preserve the peasantry knowledge and i'm talking about the peasantry because i think that it is important to talk also about class here. And it's also important to talk about how medicine and healing practices was taken away from not only women, but mostly about the peasantry. I will, I will go in depth now about this. So um, when capitalism was instaurated as the new social economic regime in Western Europe, there were many strategies to take control and to take the independence from the working class, which was the peasantry in that moment. And one of them was the professionalization of medicine. And this had three main goals. The first of all was the increase of natality, so, they, so landlords and royalty could continue the landlord-serve relationship, so the power dynamics that was, in fact, maintaining them in a higher social position. Second of all, they wanted to gain control and weaken the autonomy of peasant communities. And then they wanted to take money out of something that was so easy to take money from, which is healing practices. And then create this new science or this new yeah, field that now we have so much respect to, which is medicine. And don't take me wrong, I'm a scientist and I'm a biologist and I really think that science is really important and that medicine is amazing, but we need to be critical about it and we need to know where things come from s to be able to be critical about it, or at least is how I see this. And to do that, three main strategies were used. I will go uh, through all of them a little bit. First of all, university-based training. Uh, the establishment of universities as the only centers for medical or healing knowledge was, of course, uh, at the first step. They excluded women, but they also excluded, of course, all the peasantry. There's no doubt about that, but also other minorities. For instance, Montserrat Cabré uh, talks about Muslims and Jews in the in the Iberian Peninsula, but yeah, other kind of, of minorities. Uh, yeah, so this caused the marginalization of women from health-related tasks. And we have one exception, which is the uh, University of Salerno, in which Trota uh, studied. Trota was this uh, woman, she was also a nun, because in that moment it was a super nice way to get out of, I don't know, misery. Uh, so uh, she made heavy contributions to what we now know as gynecology. And yeah, you can look for more information about her. Um, there's, there's quite a some articles about, about her. Uh, she's also known as Trotula de Remo in, in, in the literature. Then we had licenses and regulations that were basically promoted by the church, but also by landlords, aristocrats, the royalty, guilds, and universities. 
there was a clear link uh, between European universities and the church. Uh, who issued li licenses for two reasons. First of all, uh, to limit medical practices to university trained doctors. So only the ones who were trained in university on healing and medical practices could then have a license. And only those who had a license could receive money for their, um, yeah, for their services. So, and this imposition, of course, led to a monopoly of, of medicine of the, and of the healing practices. And it was so easy to exclude people who were not able to go to university because they were not allowed. So it was, it's very logical, in fact. And yeah, yeah. And then we have witch hunting and persecution of lay healers. Uh, I have to say that witch hunting was not a strategy to persecute lay healers, but it was a strategy to persecute uh, basically the peasantry and the peasantry movements to, yeah, as a, the, the rebellions that peasantry communities had against the new social regime, which was capitalism. However, and, and because women were especially dangerous because they held lots of knowledge on how to preserve life, uh, they were, of course, um, mostly pointed to. And there was already this framing coming from the charge of lay and unregulated healers as silly, old wives, toothless and superstitious women, witches, blah, blah, blah. So this was already going on and it was a prejudice and we have here also testimonial injustice. So it was very easy to create this kind of conspiracy against the woman who knew how to heal, how to take care, how to blah, blah, blah. And if you want to know more about this topic, of course, I think that everyone knows Silvia Federici, but um, at the in the last slide, I also have uh, others, other authors. I, it's a very interesting topic, I think. So that is how we got the medical system that we have now. Well, I ha like there's a big gap of years, but I was very interested and, and it was amazing to read about this because I had no idea that this happened this way. And then it helped me to look at now and at also sometimes in history and look at medicine in another way because of course there's a lot of work to do because yeah of course women were not intended to be part of the medical practices but also working class was not intended to be part of that and also working class was not intended to be part of academia so that is why now we have all these epistemic injustice problems and first of all I wanted to give some knowledge imbalan imbalances and some epistemic injustices in sexual and reproductive health and in clinical practice that we can see now. Um, these are, I googled these articles yesterday, so, and these are all pretty recent. Uh, we have uh, enfor imposing values and enforcing gender through knowledge, epistemic oppression with the morning after pills. So this was about a uh, woman who didn't want to use contraceptive mm, because they didn't want to, cis women. Uh, so, and, the, and the they were forced in a, not in a, 
in a violent physical way, but some in an epistemic oppression way. So of course, the, med the medical doctor knows better. So it's so easy to fall in these knowledge and power imbalances in the clinical practice. It's so easy, especially when you're in a vulnerable position, which is normally what happens when you are sick or when you go to a doctor. And this was the, the this first uh, example was because there was a pharmaceutical industry aiming to, <laughs> you know, there's a market there. There's a pill that women these women have to take every day. Of course, we want this to be sold and we want doctors to frame them. Yeah, this will be amazing for you. So, of course. Then we have a, a research gap on endometriosis. Uh, I don't know if you know about this disease, um, but it's now we are talking about it. But how many friends of yours have these amenorrheas or very, very painful periods and you don't know where they come from and maybe it's an endometriosis which is a chronic disease that needs uh, treatment and there's a knowledge gap an incredible knowledge gap about this and now just now we are starting doing research on that so that is also a hermeneutical epistemic injustice then uh, of course Maya uh, we you already talked a little bit about uh, birth control for cis men. Why? Why is <laughs> this not happening? 2023? Okay, well, the same reason as before. And, ah, uh, yeah. Then we have, of course, lots of cases of obstetric violence, which is basically what happens um, to pregnant, pregnant people and how they argue and they and even now that they are very, very, very aware, some of them, uh, how they want to give birth, how they want to live their pregnancies, always doctors have to dismiss their opinions. And only when the patient knows a lot and is very, very sure on how they want to go through these procedures, only then their opinion is, is respected, and sometimes not even then. So we have a lot of epis, and I could be, talking about this for hours and hours and hours, and probably these examples will pop up in uh, Maya's talk and in, in all of the talks. But then I was thinking, okay, I cannot end with this, so I will give some hope, or what I think it can be hope in these situations. And I was thinking how to revert them, and because I worked at a woman on waves for, for a short period of time, they do telemedical abortion. But uh, I, I, I also looked at how abortions were handled in the past, and I found out, oh no, it's the last. This, which is a, an amazing tool that was invented in the 70s by Lorraine Rothman and Carol Downer. And it's a menstrual extraction self-made device and basically, it was used during the 70s in the US, but also it, it, it was also used uh, in Latin American countries, in Chile, uh, during uh, the dictatorship among prisoners in women's uh, prisons. Uh, and it was a very easy to make device that was used, first of all, to extract all, yeah, all the menstruation at once, but then they realized that the, it also 
uh, it's also useful for early abortions. And I thought, okay, this is also a way to revert, not only injustice in general, but this was used among groups of friends. So there it women of five, six women, all of them <laughs> doing this in the same room, which is amazing because it's a way to exchange knowledge uh, that was not able or that was not available to them. Then I also gave this, uh, this kind of um, example, which is self-management of abortion using uh, mifepristone and misoprostol. And you have examples of how networks of people who are now the working class is going to universities and is getting degrees and, is and we have internet and we can look for uh, knowledge because it's there. Uh, so people very experienced and people who have a lot of knowledge and even, yeah, they are doctors and nurses are sharing their knowledge. So I thought that these, these were great examples when, when the situation is so, so bad that you could only yeah, trust each other in order to revert those systemic, epistemic injustices in clinical practice. And I think, yeah, that's it. Uh, again, thank you for having me and I hope that you found it interesting. Okay, should I hold this? Um, hi everyone, and thank you so much, Claudia. That was so interesting, and I see like so much overlap with what I'm going to talk about. Um, so, like in terms of epistemic injustice, so I didn't know that concept. So, yeah, thank you so much. Um, so, I'm Maya. I am a medical anthropologist at the University of Amsterdam. Um, what does medical anthropologist mean? It basically means that I look at cultural, culturally contextual understandings of health and illness and also the medical system. Um, so looking at uh, who has the power in the medical system, um, who gets to access certain treatments and how we come to understand what health and sickness mean. And this talk that I'm giving is a mixture of um, my research from my master's, which was a few years ago, and also the research that I've been doing since then. And I called it, my vulva is a pit of nothingness apart from pain, interrelations between care, queerness, and chronically painful vulvas. Um, so, yes, my vulva hurts so much. I'm wondering if anyone has either said that out loud or has heard someone say that out loud. Um, it, uh, me personally, it's not something that I heard many people kind of speak about. Um, and when you live with chronic pain, it's really difficult to speak about it in general. Um, firstly, it's hard to find the words to actually describe pain. You know, like we have a few words like stabbing, burning, 
um, itching, for example, but how do you actually describe pain which is in your body? Plus, when you're chronically, you have chronic pain, meaning non-curable pain, you worry about telling people about it because you don't want to become bored. You don't want them to become bored, sorry, with your pain. When that pain is located in the vulva or the vagina, which is a highly stigmatized and kind of invisibilized body part, talking about that pain becomes even more difficult, which is really why I choose to talk about it. I have a chronic vulval pain condition, and I think it is a political act to talk about it, um, and also something that we should normalize, hopefully. So the condition that I focus on in my research is called vulvodynia. Um, here is a quote from one of my interviews so you guys can get a visceral understanding of how vulvodynia can feel for some people. Um, vulvodynia is actually a really common condition, uh, but it's very rarely talked about. It can affect, I mean, there was one study that said it affected up to one in five American women. This was a study done in the US. Um, but it's very under-researched, right? So basically what the diagnosis of vulvodynia means is unexplicable pain in the vulva. So it's basically kind of a last, um, like a last resort diagnosis for when doctors don't know what to do with you. And also, it doesn't have a specific treatment plan. Every country will treat uh, vulvodynia in a different way. Some doctors say, oh, it's caused by pelvic floor conditions. Some say it's caused by infection. Some say it's caused by like um, trauma or sexual abuse. Some say it's psychosomatic, so it's from your, yeah, from your mental state. And these ways of diagnosing uh, vulvodynia impact on the treatment for it. Um, there is no cure, it's chronic, so you learn how to live with it, you learn how to care for it, and that's where this idea of care practices really comes in. Um, alongside vulvodynia, many people that I talk to, I don't know why it doesn't move, okay, I was pressing the wrong button, that's why. Um, oh, yeah, many people that I talk to also have chronic vulval infections. So these are chronic candida, for example, uh, which is like a yeast infection, or chronic bacterial vaginosis. And this is kind of where my research is going now, um, because I was focusing on pain before. I'm still focusing on pain, but I'm also focusing on infection. Um, so imagine that you have a chronic vulval pain, but also every month you have candida as well. So you might have itching, discharge, etc. And people that live with these chronic infections, they really get to know the microbes that are causing them. They really come to understand, okay, this discharge, for example, shows me that I'm gonna get candida soon. What am I gonna do about it? So people navigating pain are also navigating microbial care. And microbial care, I'm not gonna go into it today, but that's like what I'm into at the moment. So if anyone else is into that, you can come and talk to me about it. Um, so this is based on my field work. Oh, I did a transitions, but actually it's not very useful. <laughs> so my field work started in the COVID-19 pandemic. No, it's cool. So my plan was actually like to go and observe how people do care. So I was planning to go into like uh, doctor's visits, go into people's houses, etc. But obviously the pandemic happened and the majority of my field work ended up being online. Um, 
I focused on vulval pain in people of any gender from anywhere in the world. However, due to me being in the Netherlands, the majority of people that I spoke to were in Europe, apart from two people in the US and one person in Russia. Um, I decided that it wasn't necessary for people to have a biomedical diagnosis of vulvodynia because, as you will see, it's extremely difficult to get a diagnosis. So if you felt that you had chronic pain in your vagina and vulva, that was good enough for me. Um, I recruited through yeah, various Instagram, Facebook, etc., and I interviewed around 30 plus people. The interviews ranged from like 30 minutes to one interview I had was five hours. Um, so it was really uh, a big range. And I also did autoethnography, which if you don't know what that means, it was focusing on myself and my own way of caring for and living with this condition. Um, I, I focus primarily on practices of care. So what do people do? How do people do the care for themselves when they live with this chronic vulval pain? Um, and what do they, in doing this care, what comes out of it? So the research question that underlined my work was, how is good care being done for those living with vulval pain and what are the impacts and meanings of these care practices? I put good in quotation marks because I don't believe there is one good that is available, you know? Like for some people, good care can look like one thing and for another, another thing. Um, let me just check my notes one second. Yes. So when you are looking at care for chronic illness, um, it's really different to care for an acute illness. So how I view care is a constant negotiation of how to make life as enjoyable and bearable as possible. So you might live with chronic vulval pain, but what can you do to make sure that yeah, you have as much fun or you diminish your pain as much as you can. The aim isn't to get better because you will not get better. The aim is to learn to live with it. Um, and it's a constant negotiation. Like it's a daily thing, especially with chronic pain. It spikes, it goes down. You, you might never know how much pain you're going to be in. And then care is never neutral. So um, as a feminist uh, anthropologist as well, um, I like to look at the whole spectrum of care. And we need to acknowledge that care is not just um, the doing of certain things. It actually reproduces or challenges dominant ideas on what it is to have uh, a body, what it is to have a good body, what it is to have a vagina or a good vagina. Um, and this is what I'm going to be talking about in a minute. Um, also, just uh, in line with that, is that care, we often talk about care, or we might think about care as something which is like loving and nice and positive. But actually care can be really, really horrible. You know, care can be really painful. It can be like, it can smell bad. It can be disgusting, um, especially if you're dealing with like chronic infection, for example. And I think it's really important that we look at the, all of the facets of care, not just the kind of loving, positive uh, things. So, we're gonna, this is from my, uh, yeah. I won't go into it too much, but what I came out with at the end of my master's thesis is gathering from all of those interviews, I argued how is good care done? And what is good care? Um, and what kind of came out is that good care is relational. It involves, uh, yeah, a lot of people, a web of relations. It's experimental. When you're living with a chronic illness, you're gonna try lots of things to try and make it better. Um, 
It's collaborative, so it's not a solo or solitary act. It's current, meaning that it's up to date. Like as Claudia was saying, only now is research coming out about endometriosis. Um, doctors and medical professionals need to know what is the kind of current research. And of course, we need to acknowledge that care is difficult. So I did lots of interviews and I asked people how their care was. What did they do to care for themselves? How was their doctor's care? What was their experience of going to the doctor? And from these interviews, a few different um, concepts came out. I don't think you're going to be able to see the last one. Okay, never mind. Um, the first is medical misogyny. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but it's basically uh, using medical diagnosis and treatments to uphold sexist ideas. So the idea that women um, are hysterical, that women are emotional. Um, medical misogyny is when you use the medical profession to... Uh, reproduce ideas about what it is to be a woman, basically, or uh, a man or whatever, but in the context that I'm talking in, um, it's about womanness. Then heteronormativity in medical care, so that's heterosexuality being used as the norm. I will s show you uh, in a bit how that happens. And then phallocentrism, this is really prevalent in the work that I did, uh, which is focusing and privileging of like the phallus or the penis in um, in medical care. And then the last one is queerness, which you can't see, but the way that I define it is um, a fluid set of possibilities focusing on intimacies that exist outside of this heteronormativity. So just to have that in your mind. Right, so uh, when you live with uh, chronic pain, oh, okay, this is the old one. Um, I changed the pictures, but they're still up there. Um, when you live with chronic pain, um, it can render the vulva or vagina as monstrous, okay? What does that mean? It means that people see you or your vulva and vagina as not quite human. This is especially prevalent when you live with chronic infection uh, because your vagina and your vulva become something that isn't recognized within what it is to have a healthy body. And they become um, the kind of vulva outside of the norm. So we get maybe like a smelly, wet, leaky, hairy, non-reproductive, non-penetrable, broken, bloody vulva, for example. So like you can see here, these are like quite disgusting terms. And I think that it's important to show that this is one side of living with these types of things and caring for them. And this is just uh, something that I typed in to Google. If you type monstrous vulva, many things come up. I recommend it as something to do. So um, my findings. The first is that getting pain to be believed and diagnosed is hard work. And we can see this as from a quote from, did I put her name in? Oh, no, back. Uh, okay, we see this as a quote from Carmen who is someone that I interviewed. She said, the doctor told me, we don't see any problems here, so you're probably just stressed. I think you should really take some Zumba lessons and just chill out. Just go dance, have a little passion in your life and things will get better. It makes me emotional right now because I know that it wasn't fair and I was really, really dealing with a lot of pain. But I wasn't able to stand up to him. I wasn't telling him, okay, I'm gonna kick you in the balls right now and then you try and dance a Zumba. Let's see how you're feeling. So you can see here um, that she, I mean, she, this poor woman had, she was completely bed bound. She literally couldn't walk because of how much pain she was in um, when I was interviewing her. And this is the type of uh, experience she was having at the doctor's office. Um, so there's this idea that um, 
women are overly stressed, um, overly emotional, that the pain is in the mind. Um, and this means that most people with vulvodynia, on average, wait seven years to be diagnosed because getting diagnosed is such hard work. And it's almost a self-care practice that people um, do to stop going to the doctor, to stop trying to get a biomedical diagnosis because every time they go, it's so exhausting. Um, there's all of this misogynistic views prevalent. And actually, people talked about um, bringing their male partners with them, or their dad, or their uncle, or something like that, as a way to get believed, as a tactic. People in the Facebook group say, oh, you know, just bring your boyfriend. Uh, I promise you, you're going to get diagnosed if you bring your boyfriend with you. This is crazy, guys. This is crazy. So this is what was happening. Um, and what this kind of um, ignoring in the doctor's office leads to a certain type of alienation that people felt from their bodies. So what I've turned, termed the alien vulva. Oh, it's really small, uh, really small writing. It was bigger in my own one, but they act as if they don't know my flipping vulva is on fire, a vagina is on fire, as if it's not attached to me. Sometimes I don't recognize myself. I used to be someone who did so much, like I was always out and about, but now I can barely move to the kitchen and make a tea. My vagina is a pit of nothingness apart from pain. That's the original uh, quote that I used. So you can see here that um, people, when they don't get recognized within the biomedical sphere, it can actually lead them to not recognize their own bodies. It can lead them to question whether or not they're really feeling the pain. And it leads to a whole cycle of doubt and stress and just general misery, which is on top of the chronic vulval pain that these people are feeling. Um, so that's the kind of first type of uh, me medical misogyny that we can see. The second is um, the medical treatments that were available for vulval pain are aimed really mainly at reducing pain to the point that the person can have penetrative sex. So what does this mean? This means that doctors would regularly, and I have also been told this, prescribe a glass of wine to relax, to be able to have sex. Meaning, why don't you get a little bit tipsy, get a little bit drunk, you can forget your pain and you can have penetrative sex. Lovely. Um, these are also di these are dilators. Um, they are the ones that the NHS in the UK will give you, and actually the ones that I was uh, prescribed and I have at home. I've never used them. Um, you basically insert them into the vagina, and they're meant to kind of get your vagina used to being able to have uh, something inside of it. Um, so let's have some quotes. Um, so, one of the main things I discovered, it sometimes really felt the point wasn't for me to get better, but a hypothetical male partner with a penis to be able to have sex with me. It's presumed the holy grail. Um, hello, my goal is not to be penetrated. So that was someone that I spoke with. Oh, that's Susanna from Poland. Um, these are pseudonyms, by the way. Um, okay, I just want to say before I go on to the next slide that... This type of heteronormativity, because it's what we're talking about here, phallocentrism and heteronormativity in medical practice, doesn't just affect heterosexual couples. There was also queer couples and non-binary people and lesbians that I interviewed that this also um, affected, even though they didn't want to have that kind of sex. Uh, so it's very pervasive. And we have here um, a quote from Mina from Utrecht, who is... Um, 
uh, who was, well, is a lesbian. And she basically went on a type of trial in Utrecht. So it was a first time trial with a group of 20 women. The idea was that trauma, um, that you have a trauma response in your body when you feel that penetration is coming. So they wanted to break the cycle and expose you to the fear. This exposure would be penetration. I mean, it already sounds just like wild. Um, so I had to spend three days in the hospital, all day with a psychologist doing exposure therapy with these small dildos. You have to lie there, increasing the size of the dildo every hour. She was there for eight hours a day doing this, by the way. And the whole point is that you're supposed to work up to the size of the penis of your boyfriend. But obviously, I wasn't going to do that. So this was an experimental trial, and actually at the end of it, she was able to have penetrative sex, but she realized that she didn't want to have penetra penetrative sex, and she doesn't have penetrative sex anyways. But this is the kind of like um, desperation that you might get into when you are living with this type of pain. There's a whole, this, this was a wild interview, there's a whole thing about that, but anyway. Um, yep. And on that line, um, there's this idea that people living with chronic vulval pain and people living with uh, things happening in their vulvas and vaginas are doing this type of sex work. This is an idea, uh, a concept by Caccioni, and she calls it the unacknowledged effort and monitoring which women and AFAB people are expected to devote to managing their and their partner's sexual desires and activities. So for people living with chronic pain, not only do they have to uh, navigate the medical system, but they really have to do a lot of sex work. And this is a type of care work, but it's not necessarily a fun type of care work. So some of the ones that people told me about are, for example, yeah, like establishing boundaries, communication, but trying to work out from someone's Tinder profile whether they're going to be open to non-penetrative sex or not, uh, researching for certain types of lube, uh, dilators, um, having penetrative sex and ignoring the pain, deep breathing, seeing sexologists, ice packs, heat packs, smoking weed, getting drunk, only having sex in certain positions, pretending you like giving oral sex because you feel guilty that you can't have penetrative sex, for example, amongst other things. So these are the types of things that um, the people that I interviewed um, were doing. And you can see here that uh, a lot of them are geared towards, again, this phallocentric and heteronormative idea of what it is to have sex and what it is to have a good vagina, i.e. a penetrable, penetra penetrable vagina, um, which I say here. Uh, everything gynecologists are interested in is to do with men and babies. It's either something to do with being pregnant and giving birth or people being able to put a penis inside you. That's just not me. Um, so, yeah. We can see here then how the medical care that people are offered is really reproducing particular ideas about how we should have sex. But at the same time, I do want to say that having vulval pain does actually open up possibilities to queer sex for other people. Because you aren't able to have what's maybe considered the holy grail of sex, i.e. penetration, uh, people who were um, heterosexual or hadn't thought about it started to actually queer their own sex practices. So Louisa was saying, I started to play around and focus on what I actually liked without worrying too much about what the guy wanted or what I thought he wanted. So actually people started to um, explore other types of intimacy that aren't only uh, penetrative sex types of intimacy. And then the last set of care practices that I wanted to talk about are um, cleaning practices and this idea of the sterilized vagina. This is more to do with chronic infection. It's more where my work is going now. 
Um, but when you have chronic infections, um, as I said earlier, there can be a lot of things like discharge or smells or textures uh, coming out of the vagina and cleaning practices really emerge as like a key care practice. What does this mean? This is like douching, uh, washing, scrubbing, then internal cleaning practices like avoiding sugar, eating a certain diet, choosing specific uh, soaps. And the one that I wanted to focus on is douching. And if you don't know what that is, it's when you use one of these little guys, you fill it with some type of liquid um, and you can put it up your anus or up your vagina and you squeeze the liquid out and it washes out. Um, so in the context of the vagina, this is to wash out the vaginal canal. Um, this actually makes chronic infections a lot worse. Just FYI, if you're thinking about doing it, do not do it. It will make them worse. However, people decided to do it because it created a vagina in that moment that they wanted, okay? So it creates um, a, a good vagina, a sterilized vagina that is dry, so like the inside isn't yeah, covered in discharge, I would say, smells good, whatever good means to you, and is pink because the discharge that comes from these infections is often white. Um, so we see here that Lulu says it makes it kind of dryish, like you can feel there isn't anything clinging to the sides meaning the size of the vaginal canal. And I just feel better. They like it, they, um, her partners, and me too. So um, I just think that this is, a interesting, um, this is an interesting type of care practice because it shows that care is always intention. People are choosing to have a short-term good vagina to be able to do things with their partner in a certain way at the expense of actually making that infection a lot worse in the in the long term. So this really shows like the difficulty that people living uh, with chronic care, uh, chronic pain go through. Um, yeah, I mean, this is my new thing, but I'm not gonna go into it but <laughs> too much, but basically um, I call this microbial care or um, the microbial vulva. So when people are thinking about these chronic infections, they're really thinking about uh, the microbes that are living within their vaginal canal and vulva. Um, and they're kind of dissolving the boundaries between what is the human body and what is the microbial body. Um, and people talked about like, for example, when they're eating, they're choosing foods that they think their microbiome might like, or when they're washing, they're choosing soaps that might, uh, their microbiome might not like, for example. So it's really like this kind of dissolving of boundaries and um, it's what I'm going into. And if anyone wants to join me on a project looking at microbes and microbial care, please come and talk to me because I'm interested to collaborate, so yeah. Um, so finally, I end, it, I end this with uh, an invitation to make care better. Um, so queering is political, it decenters static frameworks of what it is to be and explores multiple radical potential potentialities that counteract dominant discourses. So the discourses we've seen of like phallocentrism, heteronormativity and misogyny. And I would say that queer care is prioritizing intimacy over anything else. Um, it's non-presumptive. It doesn't presume what is good for you. What do you want? What do you want to do with your body? It embraces messiness. Um, it's communal over individual. It's non-binary and it's also creative. So yeah, thank you.
thank you so much for your two presentation and thank you for putting your knowledge available to the public. Uh, if you guys have any questions, please raise your hand. I had one question first. To Maya, uh, are your interviews available somewhere if people want to read them or hear them or? Um, my interviews are not available because of data protection of the people that I was working with. However, my thesis is available, which has huge amounts of interview excerpts in it, and it's available on the Uva like thesis database or whatever. And I also have written a few articles, so I can yeah put them, give them to the Instagram or something like that. I had another question to Claudia. Uh, I was wondering when you talked about this uh, tool. To, and I remember you also talked about it uh, at the last lecture in spring 2022 for our last event. Um, is this tool now completely banned? Did some communities start it no, to... it's not banned. We don't use it, but it's not banned. So it's still like a tool that is available? Yeah, well, it's, it's literally, it's uh, one glass pot, then two cheerings mm -hmm. and that's it and some tubes so it's like really diy mm -hmm. really really diy um no i have not used it i don't know anyone who used this it's m it was more like an inspiration to see how like diy and self-care practices or self-care technologies like where some examples of them because sometimes we think about high tech, that we need high developed tools or devices, and sometimes things are easier, you know? So it was just an example. I also found this example in uh, Helen Hester's book, uh, Kino Feminism, which I highly recommend if you're interested in these topics. And she, she, she put it like as an example to try to reimagine technology a little bit. Can I respond to that? Because it actually reminded me of, I think, I can't remember their name. I think it's Mary Magic. Mary Magic, maybe? I, they're an artist and activist, and they um, kind of do DIY workshops of people of how to metabolize um, hormones from their own urine. So people that can't access like hormones for, yeah, like trans people that can't access hormones, she teaches. So it reminded me of that, which is also really cool. You could look yeah, up. Yeah, there's also, uh, it's a Latin American collective. Uh, they are called Hinepunk, and uh, they also do this kind of stuff and lots of workshops, mostly in Mexico. But they have an Instagram, and it's super interesting. And there's a lot of things going on, and in, the, in in especially in those countries. So you can see that in in countries and in settings in which sexual and reproductive health is completely not on the agenda completely, we don't talk about these things, then these, these collaborative and resistant acts and practices pop up. Of course, it makes sense. And um, in Latin America, there's a lot of tradition because of abortion, but also because of feminist movement and grassroots movement starting from going out of uh, colonialism, but also after dictatorships, they are, they are organized. And the way to do these things is in an organized manner. So because if you don't have the knowledge on how to grow hormones, someone will have it. Also, uh, I wanted to say that Claudia mentioned Women on Waves during her lecture, and there will be 
the organization that will be invited our next lecture uh, when Claudia was talking about tele telemedical abortion it's uh, women on waves work uh, maybe you could say yeah, a couple of words about women on waves yeah they are Dutch NGO I worked there as an intern two years ago and basically they offer free information on how to manage your own abortion and they they offer their service in like for free or for uh, symbolic donations they also help migrant and undocumented pregnant people here in the Netherlands because they have some nurses and midwives and doctors in their team so they also do that but they are mostly like their campaigns are mostly focused on um yeah let's sensitize populations that abortion is an issue and that abortion is not legalized or that is legalized just in certain um so yeah in certain conditions in different countries for instance in portugal they they went there with a boat which is like they are famous about because of that their name comes from because they went on a boat they went uh, in international waters and they practiced abortions there so the law that applies there is the law that uh, so, the, so if the boat is from the Netherlands then law Dutch law applies there and you're very lucky in the Netherlands because it's one of the best countries uh, in terms of abortion uh, legislation hey hello my questions I actually I have two uh, for Maya uh, so I thought it was particularly interesting that you chose to include self-diagnosis um, I mean, one, obviously, to account for the, you know, systemic issues of getting the diagnosis to begin with, but also because, like, I imagine it's an empowerment practice. That's actually an assumption, but informs my question. Um, could you speak a little bit to your uh, participant, sort of, their experiences with pain? Like, were they all in different sort of periods in their life with the pain and uh, kind of how did that inform your findings? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, firstly I would say that the youngest person I spoke to was 15 and the oldest person was in their 70s. So it was a big range of ages. And also I didn't put it in, but um, it was mainly cis women, but there was a few non-binary people, uh, mainly straight people, and mainly white people. So those are all um, like demographic factors. And I think what I found is that the interviews were often like kind of a therapeutic process for people that I was speaking with. As I said, one of them was five hours. Um, this is because people saw the call out. They said, like, my call out says something like, do you get pain in your vagina? Do you get pain like when you're having sex or like a cycling or sitting down? Um, if so, like come and talk to me or something like this. And people, you know, so it was very broad. And then as I was talking to people, some of them um, didn't realize to what extent that this pain was actually with them or had been with them for a long time. Um, and others really had gone on a, such a long, like health-seeking journey. People had flown to the States where there's like a Volvo pain clinic. Um, people had done like hypnotherapy, hypnothera hypnosis. Um, people had done like these 
this machine that sends um, sound waves into the body, which apparently kills parasites. There was people had done like blood injections, Botox injections, um, so many things, so many things. I myself have done many weird things to try and cure it. I went on like a celery juice diet, like for example. So people, when they're feeling sick, they do do all sorts of desperate measures. Um, but I would say that what um, underlied like all of the people is that they did feel that they were very alone in their care because of the stigmatization and the invisibilization of having like a vulva which is in pain. So yeah. Hello. Um, you mentioned like one of your findings, I think you called it on the screen like relational or something. And I presume, well, can you tell me a bit about that? Well, as in that the care should be relational? Yeah, or how did people like uh, enact that in their own care? Yeah. Um, it's, it's again to do with this loneliness, right? So people really felt that um, they, they had to go to appointments on their own. They had to balance their pain uh, medication schedule on their own. They had to, um, they couldn't talk about it. They didn't feel able to um, talk about it in a way that you would be able to talk about if you had chronic migraine, for example, where you could just be like, oh, I have a migraine. You couldn't be like, oh, they didn't feel they could say, oh, my vagina's really bad today, for example. Um, and so what they wished is that, firstly, um, it was, yeah, it was something that was kind of more, less stigmatized, so they would be able to talk about it, but also that other people would take on responsibility for care. Um, I think that a lot of people feel embarrassed around, um, around talking about the vulva in pain, especially like, so we, I can go back to the sex work idea. Um, lots of people's partners didn't know how to start conversations with them about what to do when you have sex during a time when you, uh, when you have pain during a time that you're meant to be feeling pleasure, for example. Like that's really hard. Already we find it maybe difficult to ask for what we want. What do we do when the pain is so fluctuating? How do we communicate that? How does someone ask about that? So people felt like a lot of responsibility on their shoulders to not only um, like treat their pain, but also communicate it in a way that others could understand. And they often felt that their partners, for example, uh, would feel unloved, would feel unsexy, would feel undesired, when actually the point is that the person is in pain and they don't want anyone to touch there because they're in pain. Do you know what I mean? So I think it was, yeah, a lot about that. I went off on one then, but yeah. No, that's great, thank you. So a twofold question, but I think it's hopefully you can be rather uh, maybe even succinct with one of them. Um, a little bit as uh, an extension to uh, Amber's question is, I found it intriguing when you mentioned your uh, recruitment posters or like recruitment materials and you mentioned things like, you know, do you have pain during sex? Do you have pain while sitting? Things of that nature. Um, which leads me to my question, like were your interview schedule or the questions that you asked or conversations you had with your interlocutors, like were, was it, I'm curious basically of the strategy. Like, was it always about sex? Like, was that kind of a topic of conversation that would always be brought up? Did they bring it up? Um, kind of was it something that you more left uh, to them to then bring forward? Because I'm just curious, like, I mean, the vulva itself, really any organ is only sexualized, like, through enactment. So, yeah, I'm just curious if it always came up and then what your observations were around that. And then the other question was, I noticed you never used managing pain which I know 
it's like I just specific language, but I, I have chronic pain myself, and a lot of the care uh, around it um, uses language like managing, uh, like manage the pain. Uh, and so I was just curious if that was intentional on your part that you didn't mention manage uh, or anyway. Um, just with interviews, we literally, I just free flowed it. Like I just was like, so how come you got in contact with me? Tell me about your experience. And then it just went like people just, people just went, oh, okay. Just, I said to them like, oh, I have chronic pain. I have vulvodynia. Like, so yeah. And then people just went off on one. Like people were so excited to talk about it. Uh, because they didn't feel they could talk about it in other spaces. And sex always came up because sex is important and most people like to have sex and most people with vulval pain have issues having sex. So I didn't bring it up. I had no, the only thing that I had in my mind was to ask them what they do to, to care for their pain um, and to describe the doing of it. I didn't have any other agenda or any other questions. I just let people run. Um, but sex always came up. And the reason that I don't use manage pain is because I was just focusing on care. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought about that one. But I think it's just because I like the word care better than managing, maybe. So, yeah. Yeah, I think my question was in relation to these recipe books uh, from the Middle Ages. I guess it's to either of you. Is there some form of like modern day equivalent um, where some of this knowledge has trickled down or found a new place in as an alternative to the Western medical healthcare system? But do you mean that those recipes are still circulating? I guess it's a two-sided question. Has the knowledge kind of been capped and transferred? Like some would or I've heard that the word, a lot of the healthcare that we know today is actually appropriations of, of uh, knowledge that came from the people that you described earlier. Uh, but also if there's like alternative ways of sharing treatment and care outside of the... So like the more holistic approach. Um, about the first one, there are and, and there are some practices that were in that point really taken away from those lay healers. So uh, there are some recipes, I think, now I'm saying it like by heart. I have not read uh, the book since some months ago, but I think some recipes that were uh, for stomach ache or like digestive related pain that really doctors in universities in the Middle Ages took that. And also medicine in those years was crazy, <laughs> was not something gentle, was not, was really experimentation. And just like to think about the peasant people we're not doing this kind of like heavy experimentations on opening bodies, you know, like they were caring for their communities. So yeah, of course, like they, they were the, in those recipes books, it, it was also like they mentioned, ventilating air is very important, which is true, is true. And it was a way to keep microbes away and or mm, cleaning, Everything is very important, and this is true. And this was, of course, not sti not stolen, but it, it was implemented in the common knowledge and practices of everyone. 
and modern forms, I think that uh, all these platforms that you can now access through internet, like all these uh, web pages are really examples of, of modern ways of communicating. Um, yeah, but there, there's also patients' organizations sometimes can do that as well. Uh, so can I just say something on that? Yes. Just on the internet, like, if you think that um, Facebook isn't thriving, you yeah. need to go to a chronic pain uh, Facebook group. There's like hundreds of posts a day, and I really think it's a modern day recipe book, um, so yeah. If there's any suggestions, or if you want to say anything to us, uh, after the lecture, or even you can send us a DM or an email. We're super open to feedback, suggestion. If you want to hear someone uh, specific during the next lecture or a specific topic under our umbrella theme, please feel free because we also want to make lectures that um, are interesting you and I mean you are our public. So yeah, just feel free. We're open and flexible. <laughs>